You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Julian Assange is out of the Ecuadorian embassy and in British custody. He's been found guilty of bail jumping and will face extradition to the U.S. on charges related to conspiracy to release classified material. Hidden Cobra is back with a new Trojan, Hoplite. Kaspersky describes Operation Sneaky Pastes. IBM Security finds organizations don't exercise incident response plans. And two New Jersey high school boys are in trouble for jamming Secaucus High's Wi-Fi. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 11th, 2019. The big story today is about WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Ecuador ejected him from its London embassy early this morning, citing repeated violations to international conventions and daily life protocols. The international conventions Ecuador says he violated involve abuse of their hospitality to engage in actions Ecuador says are designed to undermine its government. The complaint about daily life protocols involves ways in which the embassy staff increasingly found Mr. Assange a pain to live with during his seven years in residence. The years have no doubt been difficult ones in certain respects. That's what Mr. Assange's colleagues at WikiLeaks say. Confinement, lack of sun, few visitors, and so on. And indeed, he didn't look good when London police escorted him in handcuffs from the embassy grounds. He now sports a big St. Nicholas-style white beard, for one thing. But then he is older, and time is the fire in which all of us burn. He gamely smiled for the cameras and gave the reporters a big thumbs up, and he also held a copy of Gore Vidal's History of the National Security State. Mr. Assange was arrested by the Metropolitan Police for bail jumping, Homeland Secretary Sajid Javid tweeted, quote, I can confirm Julian Assange is now in police custody and rightly facing justice in the UK. Other official British reaction has been equally starchy. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt said, He has hidden from the truth for years and years, and it's right that his future should be decided in the British judicial system. The big legal problem Mr. Assange faces isn't just a bail-skipping beef, the kind of thing that might be resolved on reality TV by Dog the Bounty Hunter. Nor is it likely to be his now-closed dust-up with Sweden's legal system, although that one was a more serious matter. He had faced sexual assault charges in Sweden. These have been dropped, but could be reopened if Swedish authorities found cause to do so. Mr. Assange says that the whole thing was a frame-up anyway, probably an American honey trap. It was the prospect of facing Swedish justice, however, that led him to the UK and the Embassy of Ecuador in 2012. More serious still, and more likely, is the prospect of being extradited to the United States. 
It has long been thought, based on an apparently inadvertent failure to fully redact a related indictment, that Mr. Assange would be charged in the U.S. That's now confirmed. The U.S. Justice Department unsealed an indictment shortly after Ecuador showed Mr. Assange the door. He's charged with one count of conspiracy to release classified information. The alleged conspiracy was with former U.S. Army Specialist Bradley, now Chelsea, Manning. Justice says that if convicted, Mr. Assange could face five years in prison. For now, it's just the one charge, but the Justice Department is indicating that more could well be added. He faced his first hearing at a Westminster magistrate's court, where District Judge Michael Snow threw the book and some tough love at him for skipping out on bail. The defense claimed that the face of WikiLeaks hadn't had a fair hearing to begin with, but Judge Snow was having none of it. The judge said, quote, Mr. Assange's behavior is that of a narcissist who cannot get beyond his own selfish interests. He hasn't come close to establishing reasonable excuse, end quote. Thus a quick finding of guilty. Mr. Assange will remain in custody until sentencing at some later time in the Southwark Crown Court. He could face up to a year's detention at Her Majesty's pleasure. He'll also remain in custody through the extradition hearing that will decide whether he's turned over to the U.S. for trial there. Reporters present in court noted that Mr. Assange continued to read Mr. Vidal's history of the national security state while he waited for his lawyers to show up. Russia's government denounced the arrest as a strangling freedom, and it must be conceded that on that topic at least Moscow speaks from deep and direct experience. But perhaps it's only fair to regard the Kremlin's concern as a disinterested commitment to personal liberty and journalistic rights, since Russia has said it has nothing to do with WikiLeaks. Mr. Assange's other supporters object to the arrest as illegal, seeing him as a journalist and transparency activist, whose arrest represents an assault on journalism itself. The story is rapidly developing. We'll continue to follow it as it does. Turning to other matters, CISA, the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has issued a joint Homeland Security-FBI malware analysis report on the Hoplite Trojan, which is attributed to North Korea's Hidden Cobra, also known as the Lazarus Group. It's in use around the world, the report says, and isn't focused on any restricted set of targets. It also uses a proxy app to obscure its connections with its command and control server. The report says Hoplite is a fairly powerful backdoor Trojan. Some say this is a time of accelerating convergence in cybersecurity, with increasing opportunities to combine signals from different sources for a clearer picture of what's going on. Maurice Singleton is a founding member of security firm Vidsys, where they're seeing the intersection of physical and IT security. We're talking about video surveillance. We're talking about technologies such as uh, social media uh, information in real time, as, as a matter of fact. Right? We're talking about RSS feeds where you know, folks are constantly uh, plugging in getting real-time updates about what's going on in and around their environments, right? Uh, And from, again, various different sources, cell phone data, uh, computer data, uh, sensor data, smart information coming from sensors that are part of building management systems, temperature sensors, for example, uh, flood sensors for monitoring the rain and uh, even sensors monitoring uh, chemicals in the air. 
uh, all of this information is now being flown into one central source where you have folks that need to determine, is this real or is this false? And can you give me a, an example of uh, how in the real world this would play out? Is there a situation where having this blend of information uh, really puts you in a better position? Let's take a, a use case where uh, in a global security operations center, uh, there are monitors out in the environment for chemical detection. One of those sensors might go off, right, which may indicate that something's happening, or it could be a false, right? And so if you have that sensor go off, uh, the user can quickly have the video presented uh, in the area to determine is there any activity that might lend itself to verify validating that this is a real situation or incident that's occurring. So hmm. they get multiple aspects of what's happening. At the same time, they might uh, get a phone call that says, hey, someone's not feeling well. And again, it could be in the vicinity of where that chemical detection went off. So now they have more data that adds to the validity and verification of that particular uh, incident that's been uh, reported to them. So, I mean, you could track things like social media chatter that uh, people are talking about an incident online as well? There you go. Exactly. So people now are on their smartphones going, hey, wait a minute, I just saw you know someone that looks to be in distress. I myself might be feeling some effects of uh, not feeling well. Uh, you may have chatter on uh, you know the uh, public safety radios that's now you know where folks are being dispatched first responders again all of that information is relevant to that particular situation that incident at the time that now could be brought in to get better situation awareness and also uh, contribute to the response and actions that need to be taken and do you find that this is an area where where folks are lagging do people tend to think of physical security as physical security and IT as IT no, actually, we're really starting to see the uptake in that convergence, right? Because, mm. again, uh, you have your physical security folks, you have your IT folks. And while they may have separate uh, missions and separate uh, roles and responsibilities, they are starting to see those touch points where, you know, there are incidents that are basically joint incidents in their environment. Cyber uh, attacks, for example, uh, cannot just be you know, related to someone trying to hack into a computer, for example. It could be someone trying to violate a space as well, right? So there comes that, that uh, convergence of that information being part of the same response that needs to be uh, taken to address it. That's Maurice Singleton from VidSys. Kaspersky, which yesterday described the activities of Taj Mahal, now describes an operation by the politically motivated Gaza cyber gang Group 1. Kaspersky calls the operation Sneaky Pastes. This operation is rated as far less sophisticated than anything seen in Taj Mahal, but potential victims, most of them in and around Israel and the Palestinian territories, should be alert for the spear phishing the group is said to employ. Kaspersky Lab summarizes the principal target set as Embassies, government entities, education, media outlets, journalists, activists, political parties or personnel, healthcare, and banking. Finland's election results reporting system sustained a denial of service attack this week. Authorities are investigating, but there is so far no attribution. Finland votes this Sunday. Denial of service would affect the reporting of results by the press and probably not vote tallies themselves. Still, Finnish authorities are concerned about maintaining public confidence in the election. 
There's widespread agreement that incident response plans are a security essential. It's therefore dispiriting that an IBM security study should find that over half of the organizations that have such plans never get around to exercising them. And finally, a couple of teenagers in New Jersey are in big trouble with the law for jamming the Wi-Fi at Secaucus High School. Our North Jersey desk, by the way, insists that we use the old-school local pronunciation Secaucus as opposed to the trendy Secaucus, favored by recent arrivals who lack knowledge but do watch football games over at the Meadowlands. Anywho, the Secaucus Utes, both freshmen at Secaucus High, were running a Wi-Fi jamming on-demand service apparently with the dual motive of helping out some of their bros and girlfriends who would have rather not taken exams and, of course, getting some lulls. The two unnamed boys will appear at family court in Jersey City at some undetermined future date to give an account of themselves. The attack was a DDoS. They would flood the school's Wi-Fi routers to render service inaccessible. NJ.com talked to a junior girl in a position to know who told them on background, quote, He was doing it to get out of tests and stuff like that. One of the boys was also doing it for his friend so she wouldn't have to take a test during the class. It was a big prank, really. End quote. Hey, students, leave those Wi-Fis alone. And if you're listening to us in Hudson County, New Jersey, we'd just like to close with Go Patriots! Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Uh, I saw an article from the IEEE Spectrum publication. This was uh, written by Mikhail Diakonov, and uh, it's called The Case Against Quantum Computing. The proposed strategy relies on manipulating with high precision an unimaginably huge number of variables. And I think this gentleman admits that he's kind of in the minority with his pessimism here. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, I think oh, we know there's a lot of excitement about quantum computing, and uh, it's been studied, at least from a theoretical point of view, for a couple of decades now. And people are excited or maybe even worried about it from a cybersecurity point of view because we know that as soon as a general-purpose, large-scale quantum computers are built, they would be able to break all the public key cryptography that's currently being used on the Internet. So that would be certainly quite uh, devastating. Uh, and there are a lot of people now trying to experimentally realize quantum computers, not only within academia but also within industry. Uh, now, I take you know his article. I, I, I can appreciate where he's coming from. I think it's certainly worth having some skepticism here. But I think he's really being overly pessimistic. To say that it can never possibly be realized uh, seems a bit extreme. Uh, certainly, it may take longer than people think. Um, but it, w there seems to be no fundamental physical reason why we shouldn't be able to build these quantum computers. Yeah, you know, I, I hear uh, folks saying that uh, on the on the optimistic side, it could be five to ten years, and then I heard other people say, you know, it's kind of like that joke about fusion energy that uh, it's always twenty years away, no matter when you ask. Uh, is, <laughs> That's do you right. Think it's somewhere in between there. Well, actually, I just gave a talk where I said, said somewhat jokingly that the best case scenario from the point of view of research would be if it's five years away for the next 20 years, because then you can keep on, <laughs> keep on getting funded for working uh, in the area. There you go. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I mean, what I will say is that uh, it's very unclear uh, what the timeline is. I was actually just recently part of a team that was working on putting together a white paper to actually try to come up with some concrete estimates for how long we think it would take to build a, a quantum computer capable of, say, factoring the numbers that are being used for uh, modern public key cryptography. And, and really, the, the, at the end of the day, the result was we just don't know. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the theoretical work that's being done uh, doesn't take into account uh, various real-world uh, constants and real-world constraints that people would have to uh, consider in building a quantum computer. And, and so fundamentally, we, we just don't quite know yet how these things are going to behave when you start building them in the real world. Now, as I said, people are starting uh, to build smaller scale quantum computers. Uh, Google and uh, Microsoft have shown examples of this. And I think that's why the research is important. The goal of the research is to exactly see what happens when you start building these things. And, and the other thing I like to think about always is a, is a quote, actually, um, or an observation, I should say, made by Scott Aronson that he's made repeatedly, is that if, we, if there's some fundamental reason that we aren't aware of yet for why quantum computers cannot be built, then that would represent an advance in our understanding of physics. That, that would mean that there's something about quantum physics that we currently don't understand. And so from that point of view, it, it, it would kind of be a win either way. Either we learn something new about physics or we can build these quantum computers. But as I, as I said earlier, there seems to be no fundamental reason why we can't. It seems to be just an engineering uh, task at this point. And what is the, the threshold by which uh, you all consider a quantum computer to be a practical thing and not just something to be running in a lab? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. So there are these quantum computers that are already being commercially produced, uh, but for example, by the D-Wave company, which I saw was mentioned in the article. Um, now, that computer is not 
what some people would call a true quantum computer. Uh, it's relying on certain aspects of, of quantum machinery, but not others. And so in particular, it doesn't allow you to break modern public key crypto. Um, but it does allow you to solve other problems. And so, again, it kind of depends on what exactly you're looking to, to do with the quantum computer. If you're looking to attack public key cryptography, then you need a certain number of qubits to be able to run this uh, algorithm called Shor's algorithm. Again, if that's your only goal, then that would be what you're trying to optimize for. Time will tell, right? Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Karu Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.